M. Scott Peck's best-selling book, The Road Less Traveled, which along with its companion volumes sold over 5 million copies, begins with a three-word sentence that you would think would want to make people immediately put it down for lighter fare before they went any further. Peck wrote this. He said, life is difficult. Life is difficult. He's right, you know. Life is tough. And the sooner we come to grips with that single fact, the quicker we can come to terms with the problems that confront us daily. That statement seems pretty obvious, but you wouldn't get that message looking at the culture. If you live on Facebook or Instagram, you know then that life is mostly a party. Everybody has the cutest kids and the cutest grandkids. Yes, there's a lot of old people on Facebook now. That's why all the young people are leaving. That everybody goes on the best vacations. That everybody thinks the deepest thoughts. And somehow, amazingly, everybody's photogenic. No one seems to ever take a a bad picture, right? For the most part, you don't even get the sense that anyone is dealing with much pain. You'd never know that in every life, there is often a great deal of aching, a boatload of tedium, a huge dose of brokenness, and lots and lots of sacrifice. If you were to take those things out of your life, for instance, well, things would look like, would look like Instagram. Not that there are not times when things are cool, everyone's healthy, everyone's doing what they're supposed to do, but the danger that living for extended periods in those times is, is that you start to think in your mind, if I maneuver skillfully enough, I just might find a permanent exemption exemption from trouble. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 36, when I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Things are great. I'm never going to shake from where I'm at. Then he wakes up, and two verses later, he says this, To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. When business was good, I thought it would always be good. But then came COVID. And I guess that each one of us has to decide which model trends towards being real to life. Which one better reflects my experience? Is life a beach, or is it an uphill climb with some welcome plateaus along the way? You know, sometimes I think that what we desperately need is a shot of realism. Because for those of us who have subtly bought into the social media model of life, we will sooner or later have our neat little self-delusional assumptions about living seriously challenged. Because at some point, the brutalities of life come crashing in on us. And when that happens, we have a tendency to become bitter and confused and even angry. Now, this morning, we continue in our study in the book of James. And, you know, it was interesting. I was thinking about this this week. As far as we know, James's letter to the dispersed Jews around the ancient world was the first document to be written uh, of the 27 separate letters and books and historical accounts of the New Testament. And I have always found it illuminating and interesting that the first subject of the first letter written as inspired by the Holy Spirit starts off with the subject of life's difficulties. St. Augustine once wrote, God has one son without sin, but no sons without suffering. And yet he writes in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. How can For what reason would anyone in the world face their trials with joy? Has has James got a bit daft? James obviously didn't understand living in a COVID world. 
He could never understand me as a working mother who, after being occupied eight hours plus a day, comes home to get a meal together, then starts homework with my eight-year-old. I mean, James was a church leader, wasn't he? Wasn't he a pastor? Those guys only work one day a week anyway, right? How can he know about me, a 21st century working man who's in over his head with the house, knows he's not a good enough father or husband, is confronted with temptation of every conceivable form coming from all directions, and who shudders, literally shudders when I think about college tuition. How can he know my struggle? How can he know my trial? Now, the people of the Jewish diaspora that we talked about last week that James was writing to were a group of people who were well acquainted with life's challenges. They knew every form of challenge. And yet he says to them, and he says to us, Go ahead and lean into your troubles, and while you're at it, bring out the party hats because your troubles are a reason for joy. How can, how can he say that? Well, let's look at three things that James says about trials, and then how we can end up facing them with literally a skip in our step. Number one, first thing he says about trials is that they are most, most of the time and most often unexpected. Maybe James didn't know about college tuition, but he did know about trials. His language gave him away. He says in verse 2 this, he said, Consider it pure joy. And then, after saying that, he uses a very revealing statement. He says, Whenever whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, there's several words in there that I found very interesting. The first one, translated face in the NIV Bible, literally means to trip or to fall, to, to stumble often unintentionally, into a situation that is usually unanticipated, and no one, no one was prepared to face. In Luke chapter 10, and verse 30, same word is used. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember that one? Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he, what? He fell, there it is, he fell into the hands of robbers. He didn't expect it, he didn't plan for it, and then all of a sudden, there he was, he was in trouble. He comes around a corner, somebody knocks him over the head, and he's in big trouble. Now, most trouble in our lives is just like that. It's not that college was so unanticipated, but your child was eight years old like three days ago, right, parents? When you were still, at that time, you're still trying to figure out how in the world you're going to pay the mortgage. You know, who is, you, you look at him, you say, who, who is that kid with the cap and gown? You know, I, I knew marriage would not be without its troubles, but how could I be, have been prepared for this? See, this is what people say to themselves. And most of our trials are unanticipated. So most of the time when they hit, we are thoroughly, thoroughly unprepared. Then James says, uh, second thing, he says, trials come in an almost endless variety. And the word he uses, poikilos, translated many kinds in the NIV, literally means multicolored. The trials that we face, James says, it's like a bag of M&M's. It's like a box of Crayola crayons. Remember those? Even if you knew a trial was just around the next corner and you had time to prepare for, let's say, a financial trial coming your way, there are an endless variety of other trials that will come after you. Great. You know what? I'm so pleased that you took Financial Peace University and all your monetary ducks are in order. So what do you do now when you find out that your kid has been using drugs? What do you do with the sudden health challenge? James was saying, good luck with trying to maneuver around the 101 varieties of challenges that you're going through. And if you're not going through them right now, 
uh, folks, hang out for a few more minutes. Just, just give it a little time. You start with the box itself, and each year, as you grow from childhood into adolescence and then young adulthood, your new responsibilities, demands of a job, marriage, parenthood, getting older, and a body uh, that begins to break down, grandkids, ministry responsibilities, every time those things come along, you add another crayon to an already crowded crayon box. You know, some of those colors you had only heard about, now you own them. And they just seem to increase in number as the years go by. James says our trials are often unexpected or unanticipated. And then he said they come in all shapes and in all sizes. Then he says something very, very interesting in verse 2. In verse 2 he says this. He said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In that verse, James directly links trials with the testing of our faith. He says, trials, when they come, serve as a test. So I guess that the trials that we face are not just things that happen to happen. They don't happen willy-nilly. That God has a purpose in mind. That God allows these things into the lives of his children for a specific purpose. Folks, if you don't remember anything else today from our time together, remember this. No trial comes into the life of a believer unless it has been, and I like to use the term, heavenly father filtered. That is, any trial that comes into the life of the believer has to first go through the yes and the no from the boss. I don't mean Bruce. No, Springsteen. The problem arises, though, when we take God out of the equation of our trials and are left standing alone to face our difficulties. So trials test our faith, but in what ways? Well, they test our faith, uh, the, the strength of our faith. Really, really, how strong is our faith? The first thing that a test will do is reveal to us how deep our faith has traveled in our hearts. How deeply? Trials are a way to see the depth of our faith. And I'm quite sure that Abraham, remember Abraham in the Old Testament? He had no idea that his faith in God was so real, was so vital, and was so deep until when? Until he literally, literally took the knife and was about to plunge it into the chest of his son. How could he have known? See, the test revealed his heart. To God, yes, but also to him. Well, not only do tests reveal our hearts, trials are a way to strengthen our faith. They start us on a path that will eventually lead to a destination that God has prepared beforehand for us. It's like a runner who goes a little bit further every day. They start out with a mile, then they're three miles, and they work up to eight and 10, 20, and finally they're running a 26-mile marathon. And at the beginning, they said, there's no way I can run a 26-mile marathon. And they end up doing it. They do it a bit at a time, and they work up their speed, and they work up their stamina. Now, as I see it, there are two questions that we got to answer. What do I do to get there, to get to that place, you know, where my strength is, is my faith is deep and it's, and it's being built up. What do I have to do to see that happen in my life? I want my faith straightened, strengthened. What do I do? And then secondly, what, am, what do I get when it's all over? <laughs> in a sense, what's in, what's in it for kind of me, but what, what, what's the result? Well, number one, what do, I, what do I have to do to get there? Well, the first step towards getting there is really easy. Really, it is. It's a decision. We must decide if we will, by God's grace, stand up through the trial 
or rebel against the trial, kicking and screaming all along the way, or I guess there's another option. I guess we could just give up, right? We got to decide if we will stand up against the trial or result, resort, uh, resort to self-pity. For those who determine to rebel or give up or result to self, uh, resort to self-pity, the Heavenly Father filtered trial, here's the bad news, it has no benefit for you. None. And, and I have to tell you, that's a tragedy. James says that knowing what we know, that is knowing that God has a good purpose in mind, the better choice is to stand. The better choice is to persevere. Trials, in a sense, are the key that is put into the ignition that starts the engine that takes us down the road to a better place. But only if we make the decision to see God in the process. What does verse 4 says? say? James writes in verse 4, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, fully prepared for everything, in other words. Perseverance is the road. What is perseverance? For lack of a better de- de- definition, you probably know this, it's hanging in there. It's, it's, it's standing firm. The spiritual man and woman says, God has allowed this trial to come to me. He has some good purpose in it for me. I don't know what the purpose is, but I'll try to find out if I can. I want his purposes to be worked out in my life, so I'm staying put and I'm not retreating. I'm going to keep going and doing the right thing as God gives me the strength to do the right thing and the wisdom to do the right thing, even if I cannot see the end. I'm going to continue on and trust God. During uh, his 1960 presidential campaign, John F. Kennedy often closed his speeches with a story of Colonel Davenport, Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. And one day, it seems that in 1789, the sky over Hartford, Connecticut, darkened ominously. I mean, within minutes. And some of the representatives, glancing out the window, really feared that the end was at, was at hand, that judgment was coming. And some of the representatives started yelling and screaming for an immediate adjournment. So Davenport very calmly rose and said, Gentlemen, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish the candles to be brought in. You know, one thing we can be assured of, if we stay the course, God has promised to bring his children through to a good destination. How do I get what God wants to build into me? Stay the course. Secondly, what do I get if it, when it's all over, if I stay the course? What, what is the destination? It is a mature, deep, soul-fortifying faith that will hold you up in times of deepest troubles. Recently, a friend of uh, Marianne and I's, uh, who we went to college with, and uh, lost her husband, and he was a pastor for many years in our area, and he died quite suddenly. Well, this family had endured in recent days many multicolored challenges, and even over the last few years, but this, this, really, this really was the worst. Where after greeting our friend and her children during the viewing, I was struck by her gracious fortitude, and we worked our way out through the line, and, and I, I, I looked over and I saw her father, himself a pastor who I had known for many, many years, and, and motioning toward her, I said to him, how's she doing? I mean, I mean, really, how's she doing? And without hesitation, he said to me, she has been a rock. 
And as I, as I watched and listened to her tribute to her husband at the funeral the next day online, she said something that I will always remember. In the midst of her sorrow and loss, she said, God is good and he is still safe to trust. She was crushed, but she was not defeated. See, that's the destination. That is the goal. The goal is not perseverance. God does not allow trials to come into our lives so that we will develop perseverance and ability to hang in there. Hanging in there is not the reason for your trials, as nice as it is to be the kind of person who could tough things out. Our perseverance brings us to the goal where we will not be shaken by the multicolored afflictions of life. Can you say that your faith is sturdy enough to withstand life's brutalities? When you see the end of the process, the process itself oftentimes can be a reason for joy. So let me ask you, how would the knowledge that God is working right now in your present situation to bring you to a good place change the way you view your trials? Would it, ch- would it change it at all? If you knew that God loves you and desires only good things for you and had a purpose and a plan behind the trial that you have been thinking about since I started talking a few minutes ago, would it change anything? See, see, I think it would. In the same way that a woman in labor is able to bear the burden of labor because she knows what the end results will be, in the same way that a young medical student endures the indignities of residency because she sees Dr. Jane Doe on an office door in her mind's eye, we as believers who face the trials of everyday life will be able to experience joy if we can be assured that there is a good end. Because when I see the end of the process, the process itself can be a reason for joy. See, God wants to bring changes about in your life and in my life. He wants to bring you near to him because it's right there next to him that you will be able to stand up against any of the circumstances that life may throw at you. Haven't you noticed? Think about this. Haven't you ever noticed that when you're going through difficult times, your prayer life increases, it gets deeper, it gets more fervent, that your communication with God increases, you start asking people to pray for you, and, and, and all of that draws you closer to the Lord and closer to the very source of your joy. Haven't you noticed that when you're in severe trials, his word takes on new meaning for you? You know, you read something, you read it, but now you read it and you're you're reading it in a whole different way. Before it was theory, now it takes on new life. When you cracked open the box of that new dresser from Ikea that you tossed, you know, the instruction, what do you do right away? You toss the instruction booklet away. I know how to do this. You start putting everything together. And then all of a sudden, 35 minutes later, you're looking and you you got five pieces left. What do you do? You run for the instruction booklet. You start searching the scriptures when trials come to find the answers to your problems. Have you noticed that in your trials, you're much more sensitive to the presence of God? Before, it's not that you didn't think about him, you didn't think about him. But now, you're like the psalmist, you're regularly calling on him on, on 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 a regular basis. And he, in turn, has flooded your soul with his presence. You know what's happening? What is happening is that you are experiencing the end of the process. Because when I see the end of the process... The process itself can be a reason for joy. And all those things, based on our initial decisions to stand firm, have done something that we didn't even expect. It has drawn us to the very destination that God had in his mind all along for us. What does James say in verse 4? 
Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Don't ever think trials don't accomplish something. They do for the Christian. Trials, all the trials that come into our lives are destined to accomplish something. They're designed to produce something. They're designed to work something out. And what is it here? How do we get there? It's through perseverance. It's through endurance. And if we persevere, it draws us to the Savior of all mankind, whose desire is that you be whole, that you be mature, that you not be found lacking anything. The psalmist in Psalm 40 said this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud, out of the mire. He set my feet in a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Paul gloried in his trials. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. He learned in any state that he was to rejoice, and he could rejoice. And folks, by the way, he penned those words from prison. How could he rejoice? He could rejoice because he could see that he was drawing nigh unto God, and he knew that he would see the power of Christ, even in his weakness. And he knew that out of that, the Lord would make him a better man and accomplish some glorious work in his life. See, God's purpose for you is to, in increasing measure, regain the glorious state in which our first parents found themselves before sin and the fall and disaster. Let God do his work. Let endurance do what God wants it to do, what it was designed to do. This is a command demanding submission. What he's saying is, be submissive to the trial. Don't fight it. Don't argue about it. Don't shake your fist at God. Accept it. Don't, don't be reluctant when the trial comes. Don't deny God that wonderful, perfecting work that he wants to do in your life. We should be joyful when trials come our way because we know that through them, he will bring us to a good end and a good place. He will grow us. He will mature us. When I see the end of the process, the process itself can be a reason for joy. But what if you cannot even see a pale outline of good in the midst of your painful trial? What if seeing the end seems just too far away? Just two weeks ago, our family observed the yearly devastatingly painful day that occurred in all our lives six years ago. It was six years ago that our oldest child, my only son Joseph, died quite suddenly before our eyes from a blood clot that formed in his leg and secretly traveled to his lungs. And it killed him before our eyes. And the reason I don't talk about it is because I can't. In the emotionally numbing days, weeks, and months after his death, I kept asking, why this? Why now? Why him? How, how can any good come of this trial? How can any good come of this? But listen, beloved, 
If God is committed to anything, he is committed to this, reclaiming, restoring, and resurrecting what once was to what is. To reverse the effects of the curse and the crooked trajectory that it started us all on. I know that God wants to use our pain, our frustrations, and our sorrows, those things that fill our eyes with tears, to bring about his restorative process in all, in us, in, in all of us, so that slowly but deliberately we will in greater measure take on the look of our Savior. One day this good work will be completed, Philippians 1.6 says, and we will be just like him. But it seems that it's going to take time and a fair amount of pain to get us there. Romans 8.28 has become my favorite verse. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is making sure that all the individual bad circumstances, all the frustration, all the groaning, is being used to restore me to what I was always meant to be. Unlike me, God has a, a long view of life and the work he's doing. The gospel does not promise me better life circumstances, but it does promise me a better life. And because God watched his own son die to pay the sins of men and women, the reclamation has begun and the slow hard work goes on. And in that, and in that alone, I can rejoice. We should be joyful when trials come our way because we know that through them, we come to maturity. We become like him. Life is difficult, but when I see the end of the process, the process itself can be a reason for joy. And Father in heaven, we, uh, this is so difficult, but we thank you for even the trials because if your word is true, I think it is, then you are even working through the trials that I am facing to make me a more perfect mirror image of Christ, to deepen my faith, to draw me closer to yourself, to build into me things that never would have been built, built in if it wasn't for these trials. Oh God, we pray that this day, we the crossing people, we would, I say it, we would find joy in the process as you bring us along place you want us to be, that place right by your side. We thank you in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.